0: Welcome, welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime, and I'm your host, Frank Zafiro. This is episode two. If you haven't heard episode one, I interviewed Dave Zeltzerman in that episode, and he is a very interesting guy, so go give it a listen. Uh, In this episode, we are going to talk to Danny Gardner, actor, comedian, and novelist, uh, and a bit of a philosopher. Uh, We're also going to uh, hear from our sponsor, Down and Out Books. As well as some of the experts in the field. And by experts, as always, I mean mystery bookshop owners, those independent bookstore owners, are going to weigh in and give us a couple of recommendations on books that uh, they feel deserve some more attention. Quick update on your host I am Frank Zafiro, and I am working on Fifth River City Novel, number five, in the end. If you want to learn more about me, you can go to frankzafiro.com. But this show is about the guests, so let's get straight to the guest. Danny Gardner is an actor, comedian, uh, film director, screenplay writer, and novelist uh, His recently released novel, A Negro and an Ofe, uh, just came out from Down Out Books And he was kind enough to sit down for an extended discussion with us Danny Gardner, welcome to the show
1: Thanks, man. Thanks for having
0: me. So let's jump right into the question you're probably asked uh, every time you talk about your book. uh, The title, uh, (laughs) A Negro and an Ophé." I have to tell you, uh, well, first let me ask you for the benefit of the viewers who don't have access to Google at this millisecond, what is an Ophé?
1: Essentially, nobody really knows where it comes from, but it's really like who knows where most of black folks' slang comes from. Essentially, an Ophé is a white person that can make life hard for a black person in in very specific ways. It's rather politically subversive. You just don't point your finger at somebody. Not, you know, while all Ofe's are white, not every white person can be an Ofe. It's very contextual, right? So um, an example uh, that I like to use is, you know, a guy shows up late for his own wedding and everybody asked him what the hell went on and he says well old face saw me driving a nice car in a tuxedo so he decided i had a broken taillight <laughs> you know something like that like you know so had- it's
0: derogatory then for sure yeah well
1: it's 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 very subversive you know and and you know and when you have um, you know your your boss that gives you a hard time no matter what just because you know he didn't like the the color of your skin and and the and the look of your face it, that's an old thing you know it's race and class bound together and you know so you got to think about it you know this is be jim crow um this is you know post reconstruction um this is when you know the country was going through crazy changes and you know you could you life could be made hard for you just because you are have the wrong skin color and you're standing in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, you know yeah when well, we speak in code all the time you, you know we code switch i mean half the half the reasons for most uh, African-American slang, especially back in the day, was just to be able to communicate out in the open without being oppressed for what you're saying. So it is it is a circumstance of race and class combined with a little satire and a whole lot of subversiveness. It's a I think it's a protest term. That's why I was cool using it.
0: Yeah, when I told my wife where uh, I was having you on the show and I mentioned the title of the book, and you know she asked the same question most people ask, and that's what mm. what what the hell's an ofe, and yeah. <laughs> and you know I at first I told her you know that my understanding of it was that it's essentially a uh, term for a white person that's the uh, functional equivalent of the n word, and then I got nah, to nah. thinking about it nah, and I realized yeah. that's not quite right and and actually an Ofe is is a, a white person who might be the kind of person that would use the N word and That's, make, you know, there
1: you go. That I'm, I'm going with that one from here on out. Like mine was kind of long and convoluted, but yours, well, yours I like is what you just said.
0: You, you, you <laughs> described it really well. It's really clear in my head what it is now. And, 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 you know, and I got to confess to you, you know, when I first read your book, uh, after we, we met at the noir in the bar there in Seattle. Yeah. yeah. So I, I read the book and I'll tell you, it took me, uh, uh, a little bit before I realized that uh you know Elliot Caprice is a Negro and an Ophé, you know. Yes. And, and yes. I, I thought it was two different people at first when I when I uh picked it up. I was still you know i was trying to figure out which Ophé was being referred to of the many he was dealing with. And then it occurred to me at this, you know some point. I guess I was being a little dense, but it, yeah, I figured out hey, actually uh, oh, Elliot's no, Elliot's no, the no, title.
1: No, no. Yeah, yeah, not dense so much as I just you know. It, of course, you're not dense, Frank. Right? You're a brilliant guy. The, the The thing is that it should. I, I like writing so that even small details unfold in the reader's understanding as they go on with the book. I like the fact that you had this this punch of realization toward you know the middle or the end of the book. You're like, oh yeah, see, but I see. I, to me, that's payoff. Feel like wow, okay, I kind of I kind of did what I was trying to do with that. If that's the effect for you, then I succeeded
0: in that. And I think it works. I work. I think it works because it works both ways. Like I wasn't technically wrong when I was looking at it from the standpoint of the Negro in the title is Elliot, and you know the the antagonists, the white antagonists that he's dealing with are the Ophes, because. You know, people see things through their own perspective. And when people look at Elliot, when white people look at Elliot, they don't see a mixed race guy. They see the black. Uh, in mm-hmm. him. And so, uh, it w- and, and I'm a white guy. So I probably fell into that trap, uh, especially coming from lily white Pacific Northwest. You know, I mean, I, uh, but then when, when you get to that payoff where you're like, oh, wait a minute. You know, Elliot, Elliot is, uh, is he is the title. Uh, now, this book uh, has had an interesting journey uh <laughs> yeah you know, that's that's saying it
1: lightly yeah
0: <laughs> you're you're it's just been uh re-released i guess is a good way to put it uh under the down and out books uh banner so we're mm-hmm. we're, uh, we're we're publishing kin now i've uh, got a couple books there as well tell us how that happened i mean how did where, where did this book start and how did it end up at down and out books
1: well if i if i keep the story tight essentially i had a uh, I had a non-fiction piece at a journal Literary Orphan's Journal that's run out of Chicago. And I was, I was really happy because it was the first time I had, I had been published, at least any long-form fiction. I mean, stuff that I wrote for Hollywood made it on a TV show once and a, a couple of films and, and all of that. You Then know, I stand up, got around the different places. But I, I'd never had any like long-form pieces ever published. I mean, I never even tried. It was kind of the first thing I ever wrote. And so I was really excited that it got a lot of love and, and they put it up for a push cart. So that was cool. And then um, the, the guy that had the, the, the introductory piece was Will Vajaro. And, you know, Will the Thrill, man, he, he and I, we struck up a friendship. And I noticed that he was published by a small press that's now defunct. And they put out a call for submissions, and, you know, like through the magic of being connected with everyone on Facebook all the time. We know each other's business all the time, right? So his publisher put out a call for submissions. And, you know, I got this manuscript lying around. So I submitted it. And, you know, by like 5 a.m. the next morning, they were offering me a publishing deal. Oh, cool. You know, it was a small outfit. They did a magazine called Dark Corners for a little while, and it published a lot of authors. and got a lot of people's exposure. And, you know, they put a few of his um, Vic Valentine novels out. And, you know, and Will's a, Will's a wild guy, man. Will's like one of the best, one of the best folks that I know in, in publishing. So when his publisher put out a call for submissions, I'm thinking, well, you know, if they're good enough for Will, they're good enough for me. I, I'll just send it in. But, you know, between getting that deal, being able to meet other folks in crime fiction, um, you know, making quick friends in crime fiction were really Wonderful, helpful people here in L.A. like S.W. Loudon and, and Eric Bietner.
0: Genuine, genuine people.
1: Yeah, man. Gary Phillips has always been a big help. I've, I've been able to work with him now since then. Uh, Krista Faust. I mean, I could, man, I seriously could go on and on and on. But I got exposed like immediately to the crime fiction scene in L.A. And by extension, you know, we're 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 a pretty well networked. Helpful bunch amongst each other wherever we are. So I just kind of fell in and just found my tribe. And so, um, but when I when I met you at Noir at the bar in Seattle, that was like kind of that was the last. The last gasp came. Uh, so I got the publishing deal back in like May of twenty fifteen. Fifteen, I want to say, yeah. So by October of twenty fifteen, we had arcs. And by the time I was in my hotel room at Bouchercon 2015 in North Carolina, you know they had broken the bad news that they were shutting down. Now I got a, I got a handful of arcs. I'm walking around Bouchercon. I don't know anybody. It's, it's you know, I'm, I'm trying to break myself. Man,
0: that's, a heck, that's a heck of a time. Hey, here's you my know. book. It's not coming out. I'm just saying, man.
1: Like you know, the meter is just running. But since then. I made friends with a lot of wonderful people and um, through hanging out with Tom Pitts and Joe Clifford at one of Joe Clifford's reading series, this guy calls it uh, uh, Lip Service West. And it happens up here at Pegasus Books uh, in San Francisco. I mean, well, in Berkeley. And um, you know, I met uh, a literary agent from Kimberly Cameron and Associates, uh, Liz Crottson. And after that, man, she wasn't gonna rep the book. It was just like, well, you know, it already came out once. We're more interested in in your nonfiction stuff, maybe, you know. And she's just like, but I'll take a look at it. And once again, in about three days, and said, we're repping this, we're resubmitting it. It's great. We want to put it back out. We, I'm certain, it'll find a home. But as soon as Double Life Press fell apart, uh, Eric Campbell came along and said, you know, you got a home with us at Down and Out Books, whenever you want it. You know, and I told Eric, well, you know, I got this agent now and she wants to submit it. So, can you hold up for me? And I promised to circle back and let you know how it's going. And he was great with that. You know, and I told him, I said, man, I went with the first deal that somebody offered me and look what it got me this time. So, just (laughs) once burned, twice shy, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just give me a chance to measure twice and cut once, man. I just want to make sure, you know. And he was really cool with that. And we went through them. Uh, the submissions process and dealt with, with major publishing, you know, and when I say major publishing, I mean like the New York set, you know, like the big buildings, you know, Manhattan nights. And it went well and it was very encouraging and it was pretty awesome. But you can imagine from the title and the subject matter, it ain't quite everybody's cup of tea. So.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a challenging uh, uh, book from the title on into what happens between the pages. So. Yeah. Madison Avenue did not write this book, for sure. No, so. no,
1: no, 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 not at all. And so while I got a lot of praise and, you know, a lot of folks admitted that they spent a long time making the decision, you know, the bottom line was for, you know, big traditional publishing, it was just a no-go. It was just, you know, a lot of, a lot of you know, after, after long consideration and discussing it with our editors or, you know, it's just despite you know, d- despite a uh, eight paragraph rejection letter, I'm, it's still a rejection letter, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Somebody, somebody admits that they, they slept on it for five straight nights until they realized that it was hard yeah. enough to sell um, hard boiled. It was hard enough to sell, you know, the kind of crime fiction that they're already publishing. They just didn't think that they had the readership necessary to sustain like a, a mixed race protagonist or something like that. And I thought that was really nice. Like some, a lot of folks were just very, very on the level with me and, and, you know, but then there were folks who recognized that I was trying to do something different, you know, working within the genre, but yet not shying away from, you know, the social conditions for people at the time, because the book's set in 1952s. But in its unexpurgated form, with only contributions from Eric Campbell and Lance Wright for improvements to the work. That is the purest representation of what I always wanted to write, and Eric didn't touch it. Eric just just wanted to make it better. He just wanted to give it, you know. Yeah. He just he found certain writing ticks of mine and explained it to me. No one ever had before, um, you know. He he gave me shape as far as my own approach to writing and pushing it. Otherwise, Eric didn't touch it. Eric wasn't afraid of the title. He wasn't. He hadn't. You know, the subject matter. If anything, he saw potential. He saw, you know the ability to, for it to, to catch on and sell and be something different. It's a better book after it came through Eric Campbell and Lance Wright than it was before I gave it to him. And that's, that's
0: what, what a good, that's what a good, yeah, that's what a it, good it, editor it does is, right? Yeah, I mean, a good editor yeah, yeah. Uh, just is invisible to the reader, but uh, g- goes in there and just ma- takes what the author's trying to do, takes what the writer's trying to do and makes it better. And and doesn't change the writer's voice, but makes the voice clearer and louder and and more precise. Right. Uh, Right. You know, I read an interview on a blog you were uh, just recently featured on. It was uh, The Big Thrill. Uh, Oh, yeah. I think it came out pretty recently, a couple of weeks ago. And they asked Mm -hmm. you about Elliot Caprice. And Elliot Caprice, uh, for people who haven't read the book yet, and if you haven't read the book, uh, go get it and read it uh he's he's your protagonist he's uh uh what at the time was called a mulatto which is a word which is a word quite honestly that makes me a little uncomfortable these days but uh he's (laughs) a mixed mixed race right you
1: wouldn't use it today yeah i think you'd get
0: punched if you used it today and maybe you should i think
1: they call it multi i think they call it biracial now or multiracial yeah Yeah. something like that yeah Yeah. how
0: about just a How about just a person? (laughs) Yeah. You know, but. uh,
1: You know, it just, it just, you know, it's all about energy and intent, man. We can use socially acceptable terms in very wry, cynical ways, too. So, I mean, I would, I'm from Chicago. They say Chicago is the most racially polarized city in the world, but I I was, I was born in it like a fish underwater. So, you know, that's kind of all I knew back in the day. So, hey, man, you just dealt with it you know what i mean so anyhow go ahead
0: well you you feel like uh, a lot of chicago still with you even though you're living out in, in la oh yeah
1: oh yeah oh yeah i mean that's why my that's why my first novel wasn't set in la man i just i love the city i love chicago i love her her issues her problems you know chicago's always had its problems and it's always managed to solve its problems and um, it's a it, i find it to be after being you know, in just about every state in the Union at one point or another, and even out of the country, you know in other places, I find it to be possibly the most beautiful city in the world. It's the most complex. I, I find it has so much texture as far as you know the third largest city in America just so happens to be the one, the, the, the largest city in the Midwest. It is a Midwestern city. I know folks out West think Chicago is the East coast, but yeah, no, we only got one coast in the South Lake Michigan. So, <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, you were asking me about, um, Elliot Caprice and his, his mixed race status or whatever.
0: Uh, no, not, no, I was just pointing out to the, the oh, readers yeah, yeah. That, that he's multiracial or biracial mm-hmm. or, or that, yeah. you know, we talked about that early on, but the one, uh, quote, one of the quotes that jumped out at me when I read this uh, interview with you is when they asked, uh, they asked you if there's some of you in the lead character, and you said that, uh, uh, quote, my sense of ig- indignation and my quiet fury at society's ills feel like Elliot. Wh- what do you mean by that?
1: You know, there are parallels in my character. They say, write what you know. Well, I happen to know a whole lot about, you know, the stuff that Elliot goes through in this book. I wouldn't say I'm him, but he's definitely me, if oh. that if that doesn't seem too cryptic. Um, no. You know, the idea is that you see the world could be a better place if folks tried harder. And there are times when you have to leave things as they are. And, and, you know, you see something going wrong in front of you. And in order to, you know, be able to find a better way of approaching life, you just kind of shrug it off and say, well, you know, that's not my bag. It's not my business. But, you know, Elliot has a principle and he he remarks this a couple of times in the book where well it's wrong and it happened in front of me that makes it my business yeah. you know if it I mean, if it didn't it'd be fine with that now he's no hero he is definitely a troubled human being and yet he does have a sense of rightness as far as where north is
0: he's got you know, a code
1: but, yeah and that's and you would, you would expect that from an ex-cop you know, you would ex- also expect that from a guy who grew up around criminals, you know, there are codes and, you know, what do we have in dealing with each other, you know, without codes? It's like, you know, the one guy in the in the group who always seems to have to go to the bathroom be- right before the check comes out when we're all hanging out, he's breaking the code. It's like, right.
2: dude, it's your you turn,
1: always- man. Right. Why are <laughs> you always away from the table when the check comes, man? Or you know, you 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 stop doing stand up like in my case, look down and look up, and then three years later somebody's just slightly reworked like two of your best bits. And it's like, dude, you're taking my material on the road. That's 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 violation, man. That's that's not a code. Like you broke the code, man. Like, <laughs> Did that happen to you? Yeah, that happens to me all the time. But you know, I'm a writer, man. I that's what I do. Most people yeah. don't write. So, you know, that's fine. They could take it. I'll just make more. Uh, uh, i'm not i'm not hurting for material man so i'm
0: good i'm good that's that's not a bad segue we'll we'll circle back around to the book because uh that's that's a a lot of material there but you you mentioned a couple times doing stand-up i actually pulled you up on youtube uh, over the last couple of days so the two things i looked at uh were you were on HBO's Deaf Comedy Jam Volume Twelve. Oh, you,
1: you found that one when I was yeah. like twelve years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and
0: and talking about having kids, you know, and I'm like, this guy don't, doesn't have kids. I mean, he's he's New he's he, he's New like <laughs> he's like nine years old. You know,
1: <laughs> listen, that was my act back then. I was up, so you know I'm doing stand up like ten years after that, and I'm doing a bit, and you know I and you know it was just like in a you know comedians you know, hanging out with other comedians, everybody's going up and they're doing this stuff. I'm doing this bit and I know it's funny, man. I know it's funny. I know it's killing. It's about my eldest daughter and me playing Barbies, but she's in her twenties. So it's kind of weird, but you know, I'm trying to make up for lost time. So, you know, there was, it was a good bit, <laughs> but everybody's just looking at me. They're just looking at me. Like nobody's laughing, nobody's booing, but everyone's just studying my face. And, you know, I'm in a room with a bunch of other comedians. So I'm like, well, what? Is, is this not funny? Is this not working? I can't remember who it was at the time. Maybe it was my man Henry Coleman or something. I don't know. But he stands up in the back of the joint. And we're in, like, the basement of some Indian restaurant where they got a stage and a quiet room so we can, you know, it's a workout room. And in, in, in Glendale, California, he's like, man, it ain't that. It's not funny. It's just that you look like you're 30 years old yourself. How you thinking you got to be 30 years old? Daughter. And I'm just like. I guess that I had to scrub so much. And I had this bit about having having grandkids early because I had kids coming out I got married out of high school. And so I had this bit about how my favorite sweater looks like the Shroud of Turin. Cause it's just got like <laughs> it's just got like milk and snot all on the shoulder. <laughs> you know, damn kids and kids. I thought I was through, right? And so and I know that bit kills, man. That bit kills when people don't look at me in the face. But then, I'll say, or even I'll do bits about being black. Now, in in Chicago, you know, to, to the rest of the world, I look racially ambiguous. But in Chicago, man, I, what else could I be but black? That's what people. That's what people. That's just how you're conditioned to see people. It's just like you know, we don't we don't have many Mediterranean folks walking around. It's it's Chicago. It's the capital of the Midwest. You dig? So it's. You know, that's everybody gets it. But man, you let me go to Florida and do bits about what it was like growing up being black, and everybody's like, who's this Cuban dude? (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, know, I come from a big city. You know, so in Chicago, I'm thinking, you know, everybody's attitude, and this is still when I was a young guy, everybody's attitude about life was, you know, based on my attitudes about life. And when I realized, man, I made, I, I had a guy who, I thought was heckling me. This happened in, uh, this happened, where did this happen? It happened in Houston, Texas. He was in the front row, man. And he would not let me finish my act. Brother was actually mad because he thought I was like some Mexican or Puerto Rican dude talking trash about black people. Oh no. <laughs> he didn't, it, it wasn't until after the show that he walked up to me and said, it wasn't until the end of your set, I was, I was a featured act, I was doing like 22 minutes. You know, he kind of let up after the first five minutes, but within that first five minutes, you know, I did something like kind of cool. And, you know, I, I kind of, I, you know, I, 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 it was complex. You know, I, I just don't do like, you know, standard racial humor, like black people do this and white people do this. Like, I, you know, I, I try to have nuance to it. I try to, I try to seek commonality. And, and use it as like mirror images of each other, and you know, he said he, it wasn't until halfway through my act that he realized that I myself was black, and I'm just like, well, how could you not? You're black. How could you not see? Like, what was it that that gave me away? And he said it was how I used y'all instead of you all. Well, if it took that, my man, what should I have worn? Like what? A Chicago Bulls hat? Maybe a <laughs> jacket? Something like that? Like what? What's I? I I realized once I started getting really experienced, I had to shape my act around not how people, not how I understand myself, but how other folks perceive me.
0: Or at least help them to understand your perception, you know, where you're coming from, right?
1: I mean, yeah, help myself not get a bottle thrown at me like what?
0: Yeah. (laughs) All right, we'll get back to our discussion with Danny Gardner in just a few moments. Uh, But first, uh, we're going to hear from our sponsor, Wrong Place Right Crime, is sponsored by Down and Out Books. Here to give you an update on uh, what's going on uh, at Down and Out Books
2: is Eric Campbell, the owner and senior editor. Eric Campbell here from Down and Out Books. Thanks for having us on the show, Frank. Um, Real quick, just want to give you a quick heads up about a few June books that uh, we're real excited about. Sean Corriden and Gary Wade just released *Get No*, which is a fun novel uh, set in Florida, going back and forth to Cuba, and a shenanigans this uh, somebody somebody gets into. Uh, next up is Like Nappy*. Uh, it's by Les Edgerton, and that's a short story collection that. Um, Uh, Just sets less apart. It shows what what the caliber of writer that he is on the imprint side. We've got a brand new one from uh, ABC group documentation by Alex Sazak. It's called down the street. It's a great book. I think you'll really enjoy it. Actually, the title is down on the street. We've got a new one coming from shotgun hunting. Blackie Jaguar is back and it's called Blackie Jaguar against the Cool Klux Cult, new one by Angel Cologne, and I think you'll really dig that one. That's it for this episode. We'll talk to you soon. All right.
0: Thanks, Eric, and thanks for sponsoring the show. Uh, Speaking of the show, let's get back to our discussion with Danny Gardner. Uh, You know, I pulled up a a, a more, I guess a more recent clip uh, where you did a pretty long stand-up piece and you went on a pretty funny rant about damon wayans for about like (laughs) like like five minutes man where you're complaining about damon wayans being on every mic in la and 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 then he's showing up at your ex-wife's house and everywhere what 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 made that how come the damon wayans
1: hate (laughs) okay so i kind of picked stand up up and put it down and picked it up and put it down picked acting up and put it down a number of different times throughout my adulthood, because, you know, I kind of, you know, and again, this goes back to the whole quiet fury and indignation at the world's ills thing that we talked about before was that, you know, I was just kind of waiting for it to be safe to stick my head out and be, you know, the kind of artist that I wanted to be. I mean, you know, this is like back when even Fox as a network broadcasting station was new. So, you know, there really wasn't a whole lot of, you know, depth and, and for, for folks of different cultures back then, you know, and so, you know, a lot of the stuff you get offered and a lot of the things that you have to do for me, I just, you know, I was waiting for more dignified circumstances to reemerge. And I finally did with, you know, the material that I wanted to do, which is similar to the kind of stuff that I write. I wanted to be provocative, but in a way that helps shape people's. Understanding of what we all have in common as opposed to what divides us and you know so I'm finally doing stand up regularly in Los Angeles I mean like going out like I'm a kid again like four nights a week, five nights a week you know we're actually wow. working on an act yeah actually working on an act before I take it out you know actually workshopping my stuff and, and trying out new things and you know doing two doing two three rooms a night, you know ten minutes here, seven minutes there. 15 minutes here, you know, it's 2 o'clock in the morning and, you know, the room's damn near empty, but, you know, you can hear yourself do stand-up. And one of the things that is hilarious that any comedian in Los Angeles will know, you can always be bumped by a bigger name than you. Always. And so it was hilarious in that it seems as if at least three out of every major stage sets that I was booked for, I was getting bumped by Damon Wayans. And we saw <laughs> Seriously. At the, I'm at the Ha Ha Cafe, Danny. We got to put Damon up. Oh, I'm, at the, I'm at the Laugh Factory while Damon's coming in. Damon's coming in. Like, it was crazy. So after a while, it was just...
0: You turned it, it into just, a bit. It was,
1: <laughs> it was just hilarious, man. It was just hilarious. It just it kept happening and kept happening and kept happening. I think I saw it. I doubt Damon would even... Like, we all know each other. Like, I worked, I auditioned for his brother, Keenan, like, a hundred times for, you know, that In Living Color TV show they had. And, and we knew we have a lot of the same mutual acquaintances. But Damon's Damon and Danny's Danny, you dig? So it ain't like we hanging out in the same places or anything until he needs some mic time. And I'm booked. So after, <laughs> so after a while, it just got to be funny, man. It just got to be hilarious. I just would walk in. Hey, is Damon here? Did anybody seen him? Anybody knows if he's even in town? Is it safe to come outside today? And you know, so I did this bit about how, you know, I go back in the day. I went by my ex-wife's house to pick up the kids for their visitation, and it's like actually they're in the car with Damon. They're headed.
0: So you you think he sits at home thinking to himself, you know, I'm going to go do some stand-up tonight. Shit, where where should I go? Where's Danny? Let's Let's go. Let's go bump that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see where Danny are. He doesn't mind.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The whole Weyand situation—it was just—it was surreal. And so I just figured, wow, this is just this is so weird. I have some existential connection with Damon frickin' Weyands. Like, like there's something about me wanting coming up with some new material and wanting to try it out that reaches out across the space-time continuum. And taps him on the shoulder and lets him know, even though he's famous and probably doesn't need the work, he should go out and do stand-up anyway. It's just, it just hilarious. <laughs> and,
0: and, and mess with your mojo in the process, right? You know, man. I don't
1: <laughs> know. I, I think I think one of the I think one of the funnier bits I have is the and stuff because uh, it's real because it's true, yeah, man. It's just yeah. it's ridiculous.
0: Uh, you know, Damon Wayans may be Damon Wayans, but uh, he didn't write "Little Red Wagon," so. Uh, oh well, yeah. Why don't don't you tell the listeners what what, what Little Red Wagon is? Because I stumbled upon that yesterday when I was doing some last minute anything else (laughs) I want to talk about with Danny searching. (laughs) That one raised an eyebrow, my friend.
1: Oh, man. All right. So uh, Little Red Wagon, it's actually, I made it a main link on my website for Pam Stack of uh, Authors on the Air, like the radio network.
0: Yeah, I'm going on her show uh, Friday, a couple of days from now.
1: Pam is the best. When Pam asks you to do something, you just do it because it's Pam and she's just great. You know what I mean? Like she's, she's, she's such an advocate for authors and she's such an an interesting woman. And, you know, she's, she like, she's just a soulful human being, man. She's just her, her spirit goes behind what she does. You know, she's just, you know, first of all, she's like an author's biggest fan. Like, I don't know. She's got to have more books than she has furniture. (laughs) <laughs> but at the same time, she recognized the need and filled a void for us to actually get like radio time and radio space to be ourselves, like just like you and I are doing right here. Pam asked me to participate in this in the first go go-round on noir on the air. And this is kind of like cr- around Christmas of 2015. And this is like, man, I, ah. I'm serious. I just got thrust out into the world, man. And so Pam asked me to write something just for noir on the air. It was coming around Christmas, and I figured I would do something that's Christmas-themed. You know, one of these one of these kind of shady hitman types from, like, the Chandler era in Los Angeles sitting in his apartment over the Cahuenga Pass waiting on a, a contact to come about him bumping off somebody, and it turns out it's Mrs. Claus comes in, and she's tired of the old fat man that she wants him gone. And so I just wrote the story about... You know, Mrs. Claus hiring a hitman to whack Santa Claus. And it has grown into this thing that everybody reads it around Christmas. You know, I kind of did this whole kind of old noir film, pre-code era, dames and broads and, you know, all of the, the patter in it was, you know, oh no, so you want the fat man to take a dirt nap. Sorry, honey, I'm not trying to get on the naughty list. Like, you know, it was just, it was just a, a yeah. lot of fun. You could have a lot yeah. of fun with that story if you just played it straight, but, you know, let it be a little outlandish. And let's just say that naughty list, let's just say after a while he's kind of curmudgeonly about the naughty list and Devin really wanted that red wagon. His whole life may have been different if he just got that red wagon. And when, when the guy who denied him his red wagon, his old lady shows up to do him in, well... It's kind of hard not to resist because I wanted that frickin' wag. It's it's just, you know if you go on my website you can read it. It's it
0: sweet. it is a fun read. I highly recommend it. Uh, little little rosebud thrown in there too, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> you got it. You got it right. You got you picked it out exactly. Definitely the rosebud
0: thing. We're gonna do our who gives a shit question for this episode, and this one is special for for you, Danny. After listening to your uh, stand up routine, the same. Same one that had the Damon Wayans rant in it. Uh, you had another bit in there where you talked about uh, people praying the demons out of uh, people for, for being gay and other stuff. And, but then you, you went on to exhort the benefits of the gay demons and how they help you make good, certain choices and stuff. So this this Who Gives a Shit question is for you. Answer it as best you can. Okay. here it is. What do you think of fancy towels in the bathroom? Yes or no?
1: What do I think? What do I think of fancy? Oh, yes, definitely. Yes, man. What? Always fancy towels in the bathroom. (laughs) Hey, man, listen, you know, after a while, it's the simple pleasures. It's the simple pleasures. And, you know, I'm from L.A. at this point. I mean, I'm born and raised in Chicago and I'm blue collar. But, you know, at the same time, listen, man, there's nothing like some, you know, 500 thread count sheets. (laughs) <laughs> there's nothing like some plush terry cloth to you know to make you feel it's just the, it's the little soft touches man like you know you you live how you live when you're a writer you know you, you either got to work while you're writing or you're either living off your writing you got to be frugal with your means but I mean hey man if you got a Costco card everybody can have like quarter inch plush thick towels you know the girls might come over you know you know and i've got daughters and i got you know a couple of granddaughters at this point man and, you know i mean you just got to have the nice little touches you know nobody wants to hang out with you if you got scratchy face towels and you use single ply toilet paper like you know you got to show you got some class man like you know just the, just the little things you that's the I mean? that's
0: the absolute best answer i could ever have imagined but you know really you go to the bathroom, you wash your hands, and it's a towel. Who really gives a shit, right?
1: <laughs> hey, man, sometimes I, actually, sometimes I actually give a shit, man. I, just, I don't know what that makes me. Feel free to talk about me when I'm not in the room. Yeah, man, I, I, I don't know. I just, I'm possessed of humor. I guess I have a humorous spirit, right? So. I
0: it, wish you'd it, let it out once in a while. because. <laughs> I <don't>, I... <laughs>
1: You know, I need to stop holding back, dog. I do. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: and, uh, but no, no, man, I just... Um, we can all be as serious as we want, but, I mean, how serious can you be about a life where, you know, everything about existence is so improbable, man. Everything about living life, you know, the conditions for life on this planet are improbable, but yet, you know, I'm looking out the window and seeing a, a, a clear blue sky, you know, on a, on a a on a May morning. It's like... You know, I got a book coming out. I never thought I could I could do that. Like that's, it's, it's all absurd when you look at it, right? So while I believe in being earnest and sincere, you know, be as serious as you need to be to get your point across. But yet, you know, I find that humor brings us together in for ways sure. yeah. that allow stuff that is usually untenable to be at least palatable enough for us to have an honest discussion about it, right? Like, you know, yeah, okay, I make no secret about it. I I write about race. I happen to think race is a compelling thing. I happen to think that race is one of America's fascinations that we can't come to terms with. We're always worried about how much money people have or don't have, that's one of our fascinations. We're always worried about sex and what people do with their parts with each other when we're not around to even watch them. And we're not honest with ourselves about that. And I think the third and probably the most you know, the, the most intense fascination that we have as Americans is race. We're all fascinated by it, but now we're in this era where we don't want to talk about it, probably because we have centuries of saying nothing but the wrong thing to each other, no matter what race we are in, you know? And, and you know, but we're trying to even it out. And I just happen to think that not only is it, is it, is it more interesting, and not, as, not only can it be entertaining, but I just think it's it's probably more beneficial if we spoke unguardedly about race. Now I don't mean if we should just let our prejudices hang all out. You know, if our biases show first, that's not gonna help engender any kind of commonality between two people. Yeah. But if we speak unguardedly about race, if we ask questions that, you know, normally we wouldn't ask. You know, like ask the questions when sober that you would finally have enough courage to ask after three drinks. Just do that. You know, pick the right person to answer your question. I I tell you, man, that first bout you kinda went to, folks were pulling me to the side, man, and asking me about, in hushed tones, hey, Danny, can I buy you a beer if if you let me ask you a few questions? And I'm like, man, you don't have to buy me a beer, that's cool, I'm here to make friends, what's up? You know, I got this character in my book and he's kinda of a racist and he uses the N word a lot what do you think about that and I'm just like dude I'm glad I look like somebody you can ask that question I'm glad I'm cool with that now it's all about intent and it's all about the energy behind it and it's all about what kind of point you're trying to make because you can't you can't use certain words and certain terms casually because they're so charged with energy already long before you even decided to use it that you got to be sure you put it's like a gun. Don't pull it out if you don't want to use it, right? Like just don't. And yet, I found that if I speak, if I speak unguardedly about race, you know, perhaps not unabashedly, respectfully, but unguardedly, and you know, allow somebody to come inside my understanding about what it's like, at least just to be, you know, African American by way of a really mixed-up, miscegenated, you know, upbringing through my generations. I give folks license to think deep, more deeply about it and to give people a chance to be wrong without it hurting them or costing them or penalizing them. I think, I think the fear of being wrong is the one thing that keeps us from being able to understand each other. You know, I, I might be black, you might be white, you know, which is really like an oversimplification, but that's fine. These are the two categories they give us on checkoff boxes. Yeah. But if I, if I remove the risk in our conversation of you being wrong, then who knows what kind of mutual understandings we might be able to come to. I, I, I know what polarization is. And so I'm not, it doesn't bug me in the least bit when somebody speaks out of turn. I'm, I'm secure with myself. And I think that if I allow that security to show, it will help another person feel more secure and maybe they may change their mind about some stuff like their biases or their prejudices that were linked to them that they didn't even ask for. But just because, you know, the world is a different time, dude. I mean, it just, it wasn't too long ago. We, we had, you know, horses and carriages on the street. It wasn't too long ago where a lot of people needed to go out in the outhouse in the back instead of having plumbing. I mean, I, I remember when the Atari 2600 was brand new and now there's more technology in my wristwatch than they use to get a man on the moon. You know, evolution just happens. And if we're afraid to speak to each other, and if, but, and if we do speak to each other, we speak guardedly as opposed to just being open and taking the risk of being wrong or taking the risk of offending one another, then you know how are we supposed to evolve the way our world around us is evolving? And how are we supposed to evolve the way our technologies that we use are evolving? I mean, everything around us is just advancing except the way we speak to each other. And that, to me, is just sort of like, you know, that's how we get imprisoned by the things that we have because we don't expand who we are and the things we believe. So anytime somebody bumps into me and asks me anything about race, they're going to get a straight answer from me. And we can sit there and talk about it as long as you want, and we can unpack it as much as you want. And, hey, man, I've been black my whole life, so it's not going to offend me one bit if somebody comes up to me half-cocked and says all sorts of stuff from their biases and notions. As long as somebody wants to change their mind about that stuff, then I'm the person to walk up to and act. Now, I'm not saying the next time we about you, God, I'm trying to be bothered with that shit all day every day. But, you know, I mean... <laughs> Like, let me caution that I don't want that to be my career, right? Like, I can write a perfectly good story and have nut. It has nothing to do with race. I'm fascinated by race. I'm fascinated by my own culture. I'm fascinated by the intersections between my culture and other cultures. I'm fascinated by the other absence of culture in certain instances. I'm fascinated by people. I guess that's why I write and why I, you know, I I would tell jokes and why I would try to become other people acting from time to time, right? Like, just, I like people. And, you know, until until we're all the same, which probably will never happen, I'm cool with the differences. And to be able to thread the differences together into something like a string of pearls that's in common, man, you know, that's, to me, that's a that's a blast. Like, that's the exciting thing about doing all of this, you know? off on a tangent a little bit well it's it's you're, the you're single
0: that's right? <laughs> yeah, the single most best tangent I've ever heard on the subject I'll be honest with you yeah. sometimes it that you know that's what what art is all about I think it's the artists that really force us to look at the things in this world uh you know in a way that uh examines them for what they truly are and in a way that that isn't scary so that people can, you know, can look at themselves without, uh, well, you put it best, you know, that the person can talk to you without fear of being wrong. That's, I think that's what the whole artistic process is, is between the artist and the, and the person experiencing that art is they don't have to feel like, uh, hey, I can take a look at my own beliefs here and not, you know, feel threatened by them in this context. Whereas if I were at church or if I were at work or if I were at a political rally or wherever, I couldn't have that same conversation. Uh, you know, and so I I, I appreciate what you had to say. All right, well, we'll get back to our discussion with Danny Gardner in just a moment. But first, we're going to talk to the experts in the field. And by experts, I mean bookstore owners, particularly those uh, mystery bookshop and independent bookstore owners. We're going to start this episode in Madison, Wisconsin, with Robin Agnew of Aunt Agatha's Mystery Bookshop. Uh, Hi, Robin.
1: Hi, Frank. How are you?
0: I'm great. What do you got for us this time?
1: Uh, This time I want to talk about a book that's coming out in the middle of June, and I think it's the best book I've read all year. It's called The Marsh King's Daughter, and it's by Karen Dion and it is a thriller set in Michigan's upper peninsula and it's really like no other book i've ever read um the, the narrator is a young girl who is a she's um it becomes clear as a kidnap victim and it flash it goes back and forth between her life as an adult and her life as a child and how she figured out how what her father had done was wrong and so it's psychological the setting is gorgeous the writing's beautiful but it's also like a a book you cannot put down as you're reading it that's just amazing
0: that sounds great thanks
1: it's great i hope
2: everyone reads it
0: (laughs) well thanks we'll talk to you next time all righty and now we're going to go to spokane washington and talk with linda bond of auntie's independent bookstore Hi, Linda.
2: Hi Frank. It's good to be back with you. You know, this time I'm gonna take you to Tibet. There's a series of
1: books that's been put out by Elliot Patterson. He uh deals with a, a detective from China named Chan who is sent to the prison there,
2: prison work camps along with the uh the Tibetan monks and um He wouldn't go along with things in his home of Beijing, so up they ship him. But first thing that happens, of course, is there's some kind of murder, and they need his help to figure out what's going on. So they let him out of the prison. There's a body over the cliff, Uh, a couple odd things. One, it seems to be a foreigner, and the other is it's missing a head. So it's very apropos for the name of the book, The Skull Mantra. I hope you're able to pick up a copy, folks, out there, because I think you'll love it.
0: That's great. Thanks, Linda.
2: You're welcome.
0: As always, great recommendations from the true experts in the field and some of the coolest people you'll ever meet, those uh, independent bookstore owners, uh, especially mystery bookstore owners. Uh, Folks, support, support them, keep them around. Definitely uh, make use of their wisdom, uh, and now let's get back to our conversation with Danny Gardner. I, I did want to touch on uh, your other your other pursuits. I mean, in addition to being a, a, a writer and a stand-up guy, uh, you've done some. Acting. I looked at your IMDb entry there, and uh, really the one that kind of struck me as interesting, and in, in, in that. It- you know, it was with like the Sesame Street, one of these things doesn't belong uh, <laughs> e- entry was you uh, had a role on Queen of the Damned. Uh, the...
1: Oh, man, I don't you know, I still don't know what happened with that. I it's just I, I, I think that's another Danny Gardner. Oh, that's I think not that, you. OK. I think, I think that's some guy like from what I hear, he's a great singer and tap dancer in New York City. I might have to like find him like a thriller fest or something and just like take him. <laughs> yeah. like you know let's because they keep thinking where to do it they keep thinking i'm you and you're me
0: so you weren't the vampire movie but uh, you did uh, write and direct a film called 5150 tell me about that
1: i've always been a computer nerd so i know how to i knew how to do stuff back in the day and you know like edit and shoot and and all of that so i I got a bunch of my friends together we made a flick on like six thousand dollars i actually sold it which was which was kind of cool and you know i mean (laughs) You know, I only got a couple of reviews out there for it. One of them was one star, and I think they came, like, from a bitter ex. And then another one is five stars or something. So it got me back to Hollywood, and it kept me there. And, you know, it was, like, kind of the last independent $6,000 movie anybody would ever make before things just totally changed. So, you know, yeah, man, it was just, it was something I needed to prove to myself that I did it. I'm a seek. You know, forgiveness rather than permission type of guy, right? (laughs) So, so nobody told me I couldn't make a movie. So I just went and made one. It got me a lot of meetings and it got me a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of my screenplays passed around. And it just, it did, I did really well with it. But, but I gotta tell you, man, I, I left my youth behind on that one because that was just, you know, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of long editing sessions, a lot of, zipping and driving across town. and
0: How long you did know, you just, shoot?
1: Oh God, man, I thought I was only gonna shoot for 30 days and I wound up shooting for nine months. Holy cow. <laughs> I had to scrap the whole thing twice and start all over again. I was obsessed, man. I was absolutely obsessed. But you got it life, finished. But I got it out there. I don't even know how it happened, man. I just, instead of trying to do a whole bunch of film festivals, I approached it a lot more business-like, I think. As a, you know, I mean, I was so exhausted by the time it was over, and I just wanted to get the thing sold to make it worth worthwhile. Because I mean, I lost a, a, a pound of flesh on that, one, you know what I mean? And so I went to the uh, to the American Film Market. I got a I I got an award from a Independent Feature Project (IFP West), and you know, it's like the Independent Filmmakers Society or something. And they, you know, let me go to American Film Market for free. And that's like, you know, a thousand dollars a day to go shop your wares, right? So basically they take over the Santa Monica Lowe's hotel all by the beach in, in LA. And, you know, all the suites are all of the studios and all of the independent producers and you know, if you're if you're not stacked, you just you know, you walk in with your screen or D V D and you knock on doors until you get somebody to listen to you and I have my hustle down and Everything was cool, and I just worked the rooms until I found somebody interested to rep it. Before I knew it, it was like six months later, I'm on every new release shelf and blockbuster and Hollywood video and mom and pop stores all across North America. I mean, I'm saying Saskatchewan, Canada, to Tijuana, Mexico, North America, right? <laughs> and, you know, I just like it was weird, you know, it's strange. It's just like I would walk into it and I was on the new release shelf for like 10 months back when that mattered you know back when there what? was
0: a blockbuster in every neighborhood Dude,
1: back when that mattered man where
0: like, where can people watch it now i mean was it streaming anymore
1: oh, oh i don't know it's it's no, it's out of print it's out of print wow. i might have a i might have a i might have a hotel room screening at one of the conferences or something one day who knows but there's a yeah, real
0: there's a real gap there where a couple of different gaps one where they were on VHS and they were popular uh, enough to be on VHS but not big enough to get made into DVDs when DVDs came on, and therefore they're not streaming either. And some of those films, you can't hardly find them anywhere. Uh, Joan jett made one uh, with Michael J. Fox called Light of Day. Uh, love that flick. I love it too. I mean, I've I heard about it first because of the uh, Springsteen wrote the uh, wrote the title track, and and then uh, then I heard Joan jett was doing it, and I think she's awesome. And. So yeah, I love that movie. I had it on VHS way back when, before I got rid of all my VHSs, but it never came out on DVD. And uh, I wanted to watch it again, like, I don't know, you know, last year or sometime, and couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, finally, I found it... Uh, on streaming on youtube probably illegally uh but uh it's the only place that it was available and there's a real there's there's movies like that that fall into that niche much like uh what what your it sounds like yours is it's like it was available on dvd it didn't make it into the streaming because of the time frame and right. it's a whole right. it whole, wasn't
1: around yet yeah there's
0: like a whole couple of generations uh like five Five to ten year periods of times were movies that weren't top tier. You know, they weren't the Officer and the Gentlemen's or the Godfathers or whatever. I mean, they weren't those level of movies or those second and third tier movies like uh, that that just have fallen between the cracks. So uh, I suspect that's that's what's going on there with uh, with fifty one fifty. Is it's just in that Bermuda Triangle of timing?
1: I think that for folks who uh, write novels or you know short stories. You know, folks who are, you know, thinking about just like making a little movie and putting it on YouTube or Vimeo or something, There's, you can always find a reason not to do something, but there's never gonna be a good reason not to do that. You should put it out there. It affects the ecosystem of ideas. It doesn't matter if a whole lot of people see it. It doesn't matter if a whole lot of people do it. The first mystery that I ever plotted out in, in, in broad, long detail, was that little movie I made with my own money back, like in you know nineteen ninety nine, two thousand. You know now I got a mystery novel out down and out books, and you know quite a few people are talking about it, and I'm getting a whole lot of press for it, and you know I got really like major publication reviews for it. I mean, whatever gets you across, do it. You know, whatever is the bridge that gets you across to a better understanding of yourself, it's worthwhile. It doesn't matter if a whole lot of people read it. It doesn't matter if a whole lot of people see it. I mean, you know, we live in an age now where there's room for everybody's everything. I mean, they ain't going to run out of cloud space for, for YouTube, man. You know what I mean? They're not, you know, those Kindles, the, you know, those, those e-readers. A lot of books can get put on. We can pass around PDFs of each other's work forever. It's just there's never a good reason not to do it. If you feel it, if it's creative, it's a, if it's an exercise for you, and if the only thing it helps you with is a better understanding of yourself as a person and a, as an and an artist then that's the best reason you need you know just if it if it's in you to do do it if something is in you get it out of you let it breathe let it go and then see what comes back to you and if and if it's anything more than a better understanding of yourself as a person and an artist then it's a victory man it, it really is you know just if you got it in you, man, if there's an itch, just scratch it. Just, just write. Just take a camera, go shoot something. Go, go do some dinner theater in your neighborhood. Go get in a talent show for your kids, for your kids' baseball team or something. Just, just do it. You know. I mean, it's 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 better than having it inside of you and never getting it out. I happen to think that there's room to support, you know, in the landscape of ideas, there's room to support everybody's work uh you know some stuff will rise some stuff will stay where it is some stuff will fall out of print out of parlance but at some point we've contributed to the mass body of human ideas we should just keep doing it
0: wow well danny i gotta thank you for a wonderful interview uh i really enjoyed it and uh, i'll tell you i uh, hope that uh, we end up at another noir in the bar together or at one of these uh uh, Bouchercon or Left Coast or something along those lines because... Uh, oh
1: yeah, I'm going to all those things this year, yeah. man. I'll see you. Uh,
0: I'll, uh, I'll lift a glass with you and I'll tell you what, uh, we don't even have to talk about race since we already got that <laughs> out of the way. <laughs> oh, thank God. Well, I enjoyed my time with you. I'm looking forward to seeing you again, my friend.
1: Likewise. Thanks, man.
0: All right. Always great to talk with Danny Gardner. And on our next episode, we'll be talking with steve hamilton the author of the alex mcknight series and the new nick mason series uh, including his most recent release exit strategy uh let's take a flash forward and listen to our quick hit questions with him what city do you live in now cottage hill new york favorite writer cormac mccarthy favorite movie heat favorite tv show uh ray donovan do you have a nickname I used to be called Silk back when I ran track. That was a long time ago, though. Uh, What are you working on right now? The third Nick Mason book. What hobby do you have that has nothing to do with writing? Golf. Favorite sport? Baseball. Favorite team? The Detroit Tigers. I could have guessed that one. Uh, Five-second advice to aspiring writers? Go find Elmore Leonard's 10 Rules of Writing. Where would you like to go that you've never been? Uh, France. And what's your favorite quote? Uh, go back to Elmore Leonard. If it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. Perfect. Thanks, Steve, and I'm looking forward to talking to you at the next episode. And that about does it, folks, for this episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime. Wherever you're listening to this from, please give it a, give it a thumbs up if you dig it, or subscribe, or like, or whatever is appropriate. Uh, we could use all the help we can get. And uh, as always, thanks to uh, Danny Gardner uh, for being on the show, as well as uh, Linda Bond and Robin Agnew and our sponsor, Down Now Books. See you next time. And uh, until then, this is Frank Zaffiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.